We heard in the first reading uh, from Leviticus very sort of practical advice about disease, which we've heard endlessly for about a year now ourselves. And essentially, okay, so they're basically looking for leprosy, which as, as we know, leprosy would, would disfigure the person. They'd lose their fingers and their toes, and it would just continue to eat away at their body until they finally died. And also, as we are very well aware of, the only way to catch a disease is from someone else, from being close to them, or these kinds of diseases, I guess we might say, communicable diseases, uh, whether that's respiratory in our case or you know, there, the, the, the touching of somebody else, getting too close to them. And so somebody who was determined to have leprosy and the priest would, would do it, thank God we don't do that anymore. Go to the priest and, no, don't come to me. <laughs> Stay away, go to the doctor. Well, they weren't going to the, you know, there was obviously medicine was very rudimentary to say the least. So the priest would declare them unclean. And, you know, what that meant was that nobody could go near them. And if, if the person with leprosy dared to come close to anybody else, they'd be killed. They'd be subject to, to being stoned to death because of, you know, the desire for preserving the community. I mean, you can't allow that kind of disease into the community or everybody will end up that way. So there's, there's a practicality to, be, to them being declared unclean. Right? And, and if people approach, so basically the lepers would have to live on the outskirts of the, of the town and scrounge for food. They were, they were completely alienated and isolated except for their own group. And if anybody approached or you know, was passing by, they'd have, to, they'd have to ring a bell and yell out, unclean, unclean. This was their existence. I mean, you can imagine, I don't know, a, a man of... 20 years old, all of a sudden finds that, that he has leprosy. He has to leave his wife, his children, you know, his, his trade. And he, just to protect them, he has to move away, isolate himself, and declare, be declared, and also continue to declare himself unclean. Well, now, along with, you know, being unclean, Uh, Along with that was sort of the mentality back then that somebody who contracted a disease or had this sort of impairment, any kind of impairment, deserved it. All right, so people believed that God gave it to you also, not just that you were perhaps uh, risky with your behavior and got too close to leprosy or leper colonies, but but that God actually was punishing you. There was something wrong with you, or you did something. You sinned, and you deserve it. It's a pretty harsh thing to consider. Now, over time, you know, by the time we get to the, to, to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, attitudes had been changing, but the practice had largely remained the same. And nobody could come close to a leper, or they would be declared unclean and would have to be you know, sort of proven to be clean. And there really wasn't a 15-minute rapid test. Um, so that Jesus encountered this man and that this man came to Jesus, these were offenses of the law. 
These, these actions presumably put many lives at risk. That this, this leper would dare to ask the Lord to be made clean. It's interesting. He doesn't ask to be, specifically, he doesn't ask to be healed of leprosy. He asks to be made clean. Now, the only way you could be made clean is if you believe the leprosy was gone, and once again, you'd go to the priest. Apparently, they did everything. <laughs> you'd go to the priest who would examine you and, say, and declare you, he would make you unclean. I mean, he would make you clean, both and. So if you believe the disease had left you, you'd go to the priest, examine you, you're clean, you're good, you can re-enter society. So the man asking Jesus to make him clean isn't just asking for healing physically. He's asking to truly be made whole. Right? What he's asking for God is, from God is, heal my relationships, heal my life. I've lost everything. I've lost my family, my career, my, uh, my friends. And I'm out here begging for scraps. And I have to live this miserable, miserable existence until I die. Remake me. Renew me. Heal all of that so I can fully be reconciled with the community. And also, imagine the, you know, the, the spiritual understanding is that you are being punished by God. So by being made clean, also that person's sort of punishment, as it were, is being lifted, or the presumption of God punishing them. Because attitudes take a while to change. And so very likely a person who had contracted a disease would really wonder, what did I do? I mean, that still happens. I meet people all the time who are ill, who are, who are elderly. They, they carry disease for many, many years. It's very common to ask, what did I do? Lord, what did I do to deserve this? Because we know that there, there's a certain element of it that is unfair. To be made clean is not just about that which is wrong, as it were, immediately, the disease, but it's also about being reconciled with God and with other people. All right, so let's apply that to us. Alienation. That's essentially what the, the lepers had to undergo was this alienation. It's not just horrible to be sick, but to be sick and alone and to never be able to see your loved ones is even worse. But it's not just physical ailments that create alienation. It's, it's often really, really bad decisions. It's often the things that we carry that we can't stop doing that create this tension and ultimately alienation within relationships. Let me give you some examples. This all comes from my experience. Well, 
and other people's experience and then without being specific and it's nobody here <laughs> this is from other parishes stuff I've heard you know for years but not you not you at all okay so other people have said well father my, my kids won't talk to me your kids won't talk to you yeah they won't talk to me they won't call me they won't visit me in fact they don't really want to have anything to do with me really well why is that well, I, I don't know. I'm like, well, tell me about how it usually works when you do see them. Well, when I see them, I, you know, they're not going to church, so I get on them about not going to church. And I tell them they're not living their life the right way. And they didn't vote for the right person. And they're not thinking the right way about the world. And I, oh, okay. Do you think that might contribute to their desire not to see you? Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why. Well, but I have to tell them these things. Do you? That's the question. Why do you have to? Because it's the have to, the internal need to express this, which creates division, which is the problem. Because then I'll say, well, why don't you just stop needing to? Oh, I could never do that. Why not? Just let it go. How old are, by the way, how old is your son? Oh, he's 50. <laughs> you don't get to see the grandkids either, do you? Nope. Well, look, people don't want to have you over for dinner and feel judged, right? They don't want to have you over and have conflict. They don't, you know, as friends and family, no doubt there's going to be times where, where we discuss things and, and sometimes that can get heated. But if it's all the time, then of course there's going to be alienation. I don't blame your kids. I'm sorry, the kids at the other parish, not your kids, but, you know, the other ones. <laughs> I mean, who would want that? Who would want that? You wouldn't want that either if it, if it was your situation. One of the things that we see all the time at the parish we get a call, like to get our kid baptized. Okay. Do, do, are you parishioners? Oh, no, we, we, we don't go to church. Oh. Do you, do you live in the area? Well, yeah, yeah, we're in the area. Okay. But you don't go to church? No. Do you practice? No. Do, why are you baptizing? And after, you know, we can usually crack the stone after a while. You just have to ask the right questions. Well, grandma is making them. Mom is making us baptize the grandkid. Well, what, do you, what do you want to do? I don't know yet. But I know I want my mom off my back. And the same thing happens for marriage. They call up, they want to get married. Do you go to church? No. What does it mean to you? Nah, nothing. I just want to please my mom. For the love of God, would you stop doing this to us? I'm serious. It is horrible. It's a horrible dynamic. We get all these people coming to the parish office. The only reason they want their kids baptized is because of guilt and pressure from the grandparents. That's not a reason to practice religion or Catholicism or faith because of coercion. It's incredibly damaging. Now, you wonder when they're 50 why they don't keep going to church. Because after 50 years of guilt 
and pressure, they just want to get away from that. And then religion represents that. So grandparents, I know it's not you, but if you're thinking of doing this, please don't. Please don't. Because you're not truly leading people to Jesus. And the other part of it is like, you know, the grandparents will say, well, I have to do it. I have to say it. No, you don't. You don't have to. You have an interior need to do so because of, you know, your own anxieties and fears. It's amazing how little we actually trust God to figure it out. That we think that there's just a, a formula. It was great. I can, I can, okay, I got my, my grandkid baptized. I forced my daughter to do it, and I forced her to get married in the church and coerced her to do it because it's the right thing to do. How is she? She's miserable, and she won't talk to me. Fantastic. And she, does she go to church? No. Of course she doesn't. We see this over and over and over. So what's really interesting when we look at the relationships, this is just an example, it's our own sort of inner drive or compulsions that tend to create these problems or alienations. There was a, and this truly was somebody at a different parish, and for, I don't know, I think it was a year, she came out after Mass every time and complained. Every time. Father, you're exaggerating. I am not exaggerating. Every time. So finally, I was like, I said, ma'am, do you know how I know you? She said, I don't know what you mean. Do you know how I know you? I said, I don't even know your name. You are the woman that complains. That's how I know you. You're that woman who complains. I don't think she ever talked to me again. (laughs) It worked. Just so you know, I'm letting, letting out my bag of tricks. But you know, I, I mean, there's reasons once in a while to complain or to give positive, you know, critical feedback. It, it, you know, people being helpful is not a problem. But if a person, and I'm not even speaking just in relationship to your priest, but just in general, some people seem to be complainers, kind of miserable people. They're never happy with anything in life. Something is always wrong. And the lens through which they see the world is how everything is wrong. Now, if a person like that says, well, I don't know why my relationship with my wife isn't that good, or my children, or my friends, or why nobody calls me back, there's a good indication as to why. What are you providing them? Are you providing them anything uplifting. And I understand, you know, in life, of course, we go through difficulties. There's all kinds of things we can complain about in life if we wanted to. But there's such a difference living a life as one who sees only that which is wrong and living life as one who sees the majority as a gift. One lives out of what they lack or sees only that which they lack. The other one sees with eyes of gratitude. And one of the things we have to get back to just in our own lives, in our own prayer life is, what am I grateful for? 
Because parents, even though you're tormenting your 50-year-old children, (laughs) you're grateful for them. Of course you are. Teenagers, your parents, the reason you exist is for them to torment you. That's what the teenage years are for. (laughs) Tormenting. I guarantee, as bad as your relationship can be with your parents, it can be up and down, of course. They desperately love you. They do. And what drives them to do imperfectly, you know, what they do, because no, perfect, no parent is perfect, is that love for you. And also the fear of what would happen if I don't teach them the things I need to teach them. At some point, I have to let them go in the world. And what if I didn't prepare them? It's understandable. Which moves me to kind of a, a, another lens, which is that of children, which we all are. We have to learn how to forgive our parents. I was going to say, you know, uh, well, children don't come with an instruction manual. But, you know, if you, if you Google it, there's literally thousands of instruction manuals on how to raise children. <laughs> but the reality is that we bring into, I mean, I don't, which, by the way, Valentine's Day means nothing to me. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's my brother-in-law's birthday, and that's awesome. But other than that, other than that, Be My Valentine is just... Hey, Deacon, would you? It's kind of a hollow. By the way, if you forgot about Valentine's Day, you, you might have an issue of alienation later on. <laughs> so as, ch- as children, I mean, it's true, right, that, that our parents, and parents will tell me this all the time, especially with the first kid, They'll, they'll remark at, I can see my faults being played out in my kids, and that scares me, that my kids are going to carry some of my imperfections. How do I stop that? You can't. You can't. You can just do the best you can. And I'll, I'll say from personal experience and the experience of other people I know well, it's actually the imperfections handed on from parents which create the opportunity for children to thrive. It's, it's often the things that you're not going to do the best that create adversity, and if adversity is overcome, it, it becomes a moment of success or thriving. So don't be afraid at all of the adversity your children may encounter. There's, there's one really close friend, and his kids have had all kinds of adversity. And he's worried about that, you know? And I said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. All this adversity, I wish I could do better for them. I wish they didn't have to have it. I said, no, 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 no. No, it's better. Because they're going to have to overcome the adversity, which is, in a secular way, not only going to make them more successful, but it's going to help them to thrive. If we never had of adversity, you know, the kids that generally are spoiled, get spoiled, are the ones who are spoiled because they don't have adversity. So parents, more rules, more curfews. Take the... I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to upset the teenagers. Take the internet away, you know, all that. No. I mean, the personal imperfections that we carry are ultimately going to be handed on in some fashion. And it's okay. I mean, we want to do better, the best we can, but we will never be perfect. And knowing that, 
as we are all children, if we look back, you might say, well, you know, there are certain situations, Father, that, that it'd be difficult to see as a gift. And, and okay, I understand. But the general sort of day-to-day things, and a lot of the things that we hold on to and we won't forgive our parents for are some of the things that actually allowed for our own striving because we had to overcome them. One of the best things we can do is forgive our parents. Just to let go of their imperfections, of what they didn't do well. I do not pretend that this is easy. But I do believe that it's a way to be, to remove some of that alienation that we feel. And so ultimately, I guess what I get to is I encapsulate all of this. For the most part, the reason why we are alienated from others at times is because of our own decisions, our own compulsions. And the more that we can reflect on ourselves and say, what am I bringing to the relationship that is causing it to fail? What am I doing wrong? What could I do differently? And why not try it differently? This actually is something I tell teenagers quite often. Not here, because the teens here are perfect, but at these other churches, these teenagers were rotten. And so they, <laughs> you know, they, I talked to, to them at different times, and they'd say, well, Father, it's just not going well with my parents, and I'm constantly in trouble, and I want more freedom. Okay, well, you can't change your parents, but you can change you. What if you just decide to do it differently? What I want you to do for one week is every time they ask you to do something, you do it right away. Now, I'm not saying you want to. I know you don't want to. But I'm saying for one week, you are going to shock your parents. When they, and can you do it for a week? Yeah, I could probably do that. Okay, well, let's just do it as an experiment. We won't commit to it for life. <laughs> do it as an experiment for one week. Just do what they say right away. So I don't wait until the third time until she threatens to, no, do it right away. See what happens. Now, I say that to teenagers, but I also offer that to anybody in any relationship that you think is not going well. Do it differently. Try something different. Change ourselves. Don't expect the other person to solve it. Change ourselves. Be the ones who bring the healing to the relationship and just see how it can be transformed. Please stand.